The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. I am in the Upright Digital podcast studio in Houston, Texas, joined as usual with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Hello, Josh. How are you, Dan? I'm doing very well. I think it's Lunar New Year, right? It is. It is. Whatever that means. So... There's a lot of Chinese people that are happy. Very right happy now. right now. I've seen some of the posts. It's very exciting. I am not happy. Would you like to know why I'm not happy right now? Please. Uh, the Cowboys lost over the weekend. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, and I am very not happy. I'm rooting for everyone to be fired now. I don't know what to do. I'm not really a crazy sports fan, but I'm a childhood Dallas Cowboys fan. This was a tough loss. I, I bought into the hype and the hope. There you go. Well, welcome to the disappointed football fan club then. Yeah. I, I, I've never really rooted against you in your quest to find out if the Texans are going to win. Yes. Uh, it may seem like I'm rooting against you. <laughs> I just, uh, but man, this one, my son is 12 and he's feeling it. He's feeling it. It's, it feels pretty terrible to introduce him to the Dallas Cowboys, you know, fandom. And I said, Hulk on this one, I don't Did know. Did he cry? He's not crying because I'm not turning him into a you know a crazy fan, but he's upset and he just doesn't understand. You know, he How thought it could happen. Yeah, because I promised him we were going to the Super Bowl if they were going to the Super Bowl. So it's it was a rough weekend for us. Canceled those plane tickets. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna pick you up <laughs> with a fabulous guest. Today yeah, that was a pretty. Podcast. I'm sorry, audience. Yeah. I didn't mean to. I, I'm having a bad day. This is not great. This is really yeah. a tough, tough Monday here. We're going to turn that frown upside down. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Our guest today, Patricia Martinez. She is the, uh, this is a new word for me, the CETO, Chief Energy Transition Officer at Interflex. And so, Patricia, thanks for being with us. Hi, Dan. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me today. I'm Absolutely. excited to be here to hopefully make up for your loss. I'm not right. normally this depressed at the beginning of the show, but thank you for welcome, I guess. How are you? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Patricia, we always like to start our podcast with understanding who our guest is. So maybe just tell us a little bit about you. You do not have a West Texas or Texas accent. So tell us about where you're from how you got to where you are and what you're doing today. Great. Yeah, clearly uh, not Texan, although I've been here for 25 years, uh, originally from Argentina. That's where I grew up and uh, took my, I grew up, yeah, in an uh, agricultural sort of uh, rural town uh, in a rural family with two brothers. 
pretty much um, as an athlete, uh, played um, high performing sort of volleyball throughout my youth and any other uh, sort of uh, sports with the balls that my brother would throw at me. I grew up with two mm. brothers, younger and older. So, uh, and uh, yeah, early out of school got, um, my first job was with Conoco in Argentina. And that's what brought me as to Houston. As a finance person, as an engineering person? As a business person. I okay. had a business degree, uh, business, business administration and marketing degree. And um, just was hired by DuPont at the time that was owner of Conoco then. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and got into this fascinating world of energy that uh, that's where I ended up uh, making a career. Um, I came to Houston early in my 20s um, and uh, went to business school, did an MBA. After that, I started my career with Shell. And uh, after six or seven years, I was ready to, um, to go into sort of the startup world and had the opportunity to um, uh, to work for a company that was sort of establishing themselves in the sort of energy infrastructure, gas compression processing business and wanted to start a business internationally. So I had the pleasure for the following decade from the mid 2000s um, to really uh, deploy quite a bit of uh, natural gas infrastructure assets around the world, mainly Latin America, Middle East, Southeast Asia and Australia until uh, 2014 that Enerflex um, bought uh, that business. And so uh, my assets, my team sort of went from private equity on at the time to be part of Enerflex, where we've been focusing on in growing this um, global um, uh, natural gas infrastructure presence. At, uh, up until recently that I took on the challenge of um, sort of guiding our company through the transition journey. And um, and uh, that's what I've been doing since mm, 2021. Yes, maybe the most important question of this interview or this podcast is, are you a spiker, a setter? What's your What was your position in competitive volleyball? Definitely spiker. Okay. <laughs> How tall are you? Yeah, I'm 5'11". Okay, no, but a big jumper then. A big jumper. Not quite uh, Not quite tall to be able to play center. I, okay. I grew up being center, middle center, and then... Um, when I, the more, uh, as I was advancing more into sort of the professional world, uh, I wasn't tall enough. So I was a big disappointment, although I always thought that I was really tall, definitely taller than all my friends. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, by heart, a, uh, a spiker. Okay. So this just continues the, uh, tradition of you bringing extremely tall friends of yes. yours onto the show. Yes. If you go back and look at our post, everybody Dan brings on is a very tall athlete. So. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. I so, feed them all. <laughs> yes. And so that wasn't the most important question, but it's definitely interesting. So you tell us a little bit about Interflex. It's a, it's a public company listed yep. in Canada. Uh, but tell us a little bit about kind of the background of the, the business. And and you're, is it pivoting 100% toward energy transition or is what's it do? Yeah. So yeah, Enerflex has been around for almost five decades, initially as a sort of a specializing in manufacturing and modularization of process technologies, compression, gas processing, treating, etc. And throughout the four decades, uh, really um, grew from being a smaller company in Canada to having a major presence in the US and 
and global presence internationally. And since the acquisition of of the assets that I that I used to run, really um, also focus in natural gas sort of mainstream infrastructure, primarily outside the U.S. And so. Um, the transition is definitely not a full pivot for us. <coughs> it's, it's really an opportunity um, uh, for us to bring our core competencies and skill set into the mix on how the future of energy is going to look. Um, we believe the future of energy will require um, con- will require hydrocarbons in the in the energy matrix for sure and the opportunity to actually um, use our core competencies of of process technologies and packaging process technologies in novel ways to do it sustainable. And so, um, like I said, Dan, it's not a full pivot, definitely a natural evolution Mm -hmm. of how we are supposed to uh, grow or develop into the the future of energy. Okay. And so you're you are manufacturing these big pieces of kit that go into process industries, natural gas. So I think about, when I think about Interflex and, and Xterran was another recent acquisition, um, I think about that as big compression, big compressors. And these are going into everything from hydrocarbon infrastructure to process technologies, domestic and international? That's correct. Okay. And so, but you're the, chief energy transition officer so what does that mean what what industries or what areas are you thinking about and then we're going to come back and talk about net zero yeah yeah so um when we sort of uh you know three four years ago i started looking at hey you know certainly the the pandemic or covid was a wake-up call i would say for everyone in the world no matter what industry you're in you you figure what is the future going to look like and for us was starting to think what is energy going to look in the future and what we can do about it and so uh, we figured that um, sort of we looked back at so what is the role of fossil fuels in the future and certainly although we believe that that natural gas and hydrocarbons are a a meaningful me uh, um, uh, part of the mix we also realize that um, the the growth of natural gas in the future is at best maybe you know it will grow with GDP so it will not experience the growth of uh, that we as an industry have experienced in experience in the last two three decades so it was important to figure out what do we look like in the future what else other than natural gas and what with natural gas and so that's when I really took on this role and our focus was to initially understand where our core competencies of understanding process modularization and understanding technologies um, would fit in. And we quickly realized that really four verticals we identified where our uh, core um, skills and expertise fit in. And for for us, that was important because it wasn't about saying, oh, there is an opportunity in clean energy, let's do windmills. For us, it was important to uh, to find an area that we could add expertise and we would have a competitive advantage and we would make a difference to our uh, our customers. And so those four verticals uh, for us ended up being um, CCS, um, mainly carbon capture. That's what our expertise is, but we're definitely 
sort of expanding along the value uh, chain of the whole carbon capture and sequestration, and we're happy to talk about it uh, later on, um, hydrogen, bioenergies, and electrification. Those four verticals somehow um, are a really natural fit to Enerflex, not only because um, with the exception of electrification, the, the CCS, hydrogen, and bioenergies, they all involved uh, process technologies. Mm -hmm. It's about transforming molecules and transforming either waste into energy. Or and so the, the, the idea of, of this transformation of energy, that's what is our core. Um, we used to, our vision used to be transforming natural gas uh, to meet the world's needs, and it now has changed to transforming energy for a sustainable future. So that's what we're doing. So in essence, our core competencies have not changed, now are being adapted to the wider uh, mm -hmm. landscape of energy. And Josh, you know, this is, this goes back to the things we've, we've talked about in a number of podcasts, which is particularly around companies that have traditionally been manufacturers of services, that the energy transition doesn't cannibalize business that actually creates business opportunities, mm -hmm. right? There's more, there's more areas t to bring your skill sets. And I think that's what you're talking about. You, you're adding these four, you're not subtracting two or three other things. Well, and that's really what I was, I, I'm sorry for making that noise, but when I'm doing, I was researching you and you're obviously on track with your presentation, but really this isn't far from what the Interflex that I remember yeah, out of Calgary too, right? You're That's having, right. Yeah. And obviously the, the modular stuff, I'm, you know, manufacturing go back <coughs> 10 or 15 years ago. This is a lot of the Interflex that I remembered. But so some of my notes from earlier were, you know, the e-compression. How far off is that from the former compression that you were doing 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? You're just electrifying your compression now. I mean, so you guys looked at areas that you could, you know, yeah. uh, add some energy transition into. Can you explain that to me a little bit? Yeah, it's to your point, it's absolutely not. As a matter of fact, up to today, we've packaged in our history um, over 2 million of horsepower of electric compression. And this is from 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. We've been doing electric compression for 40 years. I think the change is on the fact that obviously the demand wasn't there. So for every, for every 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 year we would do less than 10% of our total horsepower package would be electric the rest would be natural gas sort of combustion engine the demand wasn't there uh, the electrification wasn't there the penetration of 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 electricity throughout industries wasn't there and furthermore clean electricity right mm -hmm. and so electrification now makes more sense than it did in the past just because electricity is available is in general fairly cheap and in texas you have a good 80 20 uh, percent or so of the of the mix is renewable mm -hmm. so you arguably are better off electrifying right and so but electrification again it doesn't make sense for everyone everywhere right. to electrify it's it's a, as, as driving an ev I drive an EV, love it. I'm able to get uh, solar energy because you have installed solar panels, etc. Then you make a difference. Otherwise, you don't. And so, understanding where it makes sense, and and um, it's, it's it's our job. And so, on, right now, on electrification, we're also doing we're doing quite a bit of work in electrifying our own fleet 
um, the fleet of our customers, but also where you cannot electrify because you don't have access. How can you um, capture the uh, emissions from the exhaust? Mm -hmm. And we've been doing a lot of work. Uh, we have ongoing four or five pilots with different customers to piloting different technologies to figure out um, how we can make this happen sort of economically and viable for those areas that electrification is not possible. So, but to the Dan's point that, you know, I kind of, I was looking at something I, when you, before you brought that point up, one of the things that we do on this show too is, again, I'm an oil and gas guy at my core, and I really wanted to jump into this energy and transition podcast with Dan earlier and Leslie Byard as well. The, the concern that I had was a lot of my oil and gas friends were going to write this energy and transition off as something that they had, didn't have to pay attention to, or it was too far for them to, a, to, a bridge too far, if you will. And I think that this is something you're describing that, no, you just need to maybe take a look at what you're doing and see if there's areas that you can, you know, you, the proverbial you, yep. right, the industry, uh, where are areas that you can step out and maybe it's not as far as you think it is. And that's, I think that's to your point, what you were saying that some of these things just aren't as far out as we think right. they are. Absolutely. So Patricia, if, if we think about these four verticals that you're talking about in the, as your, as your core focus, actually, before we do that, you said you drive an EV. It sounds like you've got solar panels or so you are, uh, committed committed you're you are on the more significantly decarbonized of of the individuals that we all interact with on a daily basis so um are you doing that because you want to save the planet you think it's the right thing to do and when we think about this net zero dynamic of getting to net zero by 2050 is the world going to make it where where do you stand on all those things I would say first I will answer as an individual. Yes, um, please. I'm, I'm doing that because, not necessarily because I want to save the planet, but I am committed to do the right thing or what I think is the right thing and what I can do, uh, and in this case, driving an, an EV, is um, I think it's the right, the right choice because I have an opportunity to help uh, reduce the, um, the emissions that I would generate otherwise, but most importantly, is uh, is a positive bottom line for my pocket. Okay, and I think that talk that's about that meaning meaning you spend less on electricity than you do on gasoline, or that's correct. And so, and and I think to to, to the point of that is that we're all. I think that none of us want to pollute pollute the world or, 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 or to the activities that we do engage in, 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 um, in contributing to, um, uh, to, to climate change. Nobody uh, does it. However, we all, um, uh, we all try to address it the way we can. And the, the way we can, it always, can you do it? Is technology there? Uh, if technology is there, can you afford it? That's, this, that's the second question. Mm -hmm. And lastly, who pays for it, right? And so I think that there are many things that need to be solved and answered in order for us to make the right and, and, um, and take the rational steps towards the transition. Mm -hmm. So when you asked about net zero, is that the great thing, not the great thing? 
what I think net zero does, especially for us in the industry, and as as a world, th this is, let's back up, let's go, le let's go 40,000 feet first. I think the net zero problem is not a me problem, it's not a Houston problem, it's not a US problem, it's a world problem, right? And so that that makes it very, very difficult. It's gonna be regional, it's gonna be unequal, and it's gonna take many, many decades too. And so how does the world land or agree into a common goal? So I look at net zero as this common sh shared objective that has allowed a world to rally behind a goal. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, good or bad, I have really no judgment for where net zero is right or wrong, but what, what, what I liked about the net zero goal is that it's simple and that it allows people to rally behind it directionally an objective and then everyone to the individual and company level can establish their own uh, their own plan how to get to net zero. And the way I get to net zero is different from the way from the way uh, somebody in a different country is mm -hmm. going to get to net zero, or a, or a different industry will get differently. And so that's sort of what I like ab about net zero. Now, are we? Your question was, are we on the track to get there, and are we going to get there? I think directionally, a lot of things are happening. Um, and certainly, I and Enerflex and the industry, uh, our, our energy industry in general, is doing tons of work to get, to get there. Um, in my mind, clearly, four things probably need to happen. Um, one is uh, it needs to be an unprecedented sort of fast deployment of clean energy in our power generation um, grid. And when we looked at the last two, three decades, we have what in the US a penetration of maybe 18%. So- Gonna have to go faster that, than that. That, that yeah. would have to go faster, much faster than that, along with quite a bit of advancement in uh, technology storage, uh, such as batteries, hydro pump, you name it, Dif but long duration storage to take care of the intermittency issue of the of the renewables. Mm. Um, we're gonna have to actually make a lot of improvements in the way, in efficiency, energy efficiency, in the way we consume energy. And, and the demand uh, at a sort of industrial residential level, I think will have to uh, shift too. Uh, not only from a clean electrification perspective, but also in the harder to abate industries to um, to type of fuels or sources of uh, or carriers of energy such as hydrogen will mm -hmm. make a big difference, right? In in in, in cement, steel, etc. And lastly, and I would say most importantly, and probably the one that we can talk um, uh, more about is recognizing that hydrocarbons will continue to be a meaningful um, contributor into the energy mix. Uh, but in the short term also, there, there are many opportunities to actually um, make it sustainable, yep. uh, sort of future-proof the, uh, the, the sustainability of, of hydrocarbons in the energy matrix. And to that point, I think particularly in our industry, not only focusing on sort of on fugitive emissions of methane and, and address which the industry 
has been doing a phenomenal job and will continue to do, uh, but also CCS, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, I think will play a, a meaningful role. The, the EIA in the latest uh, report, uh, I think uh, said that CCS now will increase its share of sort of the 30 gigatons that we need to reduce in order to get to net zero, CCS will be um, almost 15% of that. So that's huge. Yeah. We're talking about four gigatons of carbon being removed uh, via CCS technologies. Yeah. You've been with Interflex a while, the group. How does how is it received internally, this, I mean, I don't, I don't can I call it a transition internally as well? I mean, is it a shift or is it a- Certainly a new a, business. A pivot, right? yeah. What, how do you call that? Yeah, no, I think that uh, it's, it's definitely well received. There is there is wide support from you know, our board, our executive team, et cetera, to, uh, to do what we, what we are good and what bring the value that we can bring to the transition, do our part. Mm -hmm. And and there is a lot of enthusiasm to the fact that our core expertise and our experience, like I mentioned, Josh, we've packaged two million horsepower of, of electric compression. We've done over five million tons of uh, carbon projects in our history. We've done hydrogen projects. So it's not new, mm -hmm. but uh, so to bring our core uh, skill set and expertise into trying to solve a much larger problem that is beyond sort of the past industrial demand sure. um, is, a, is a daunting challenge and it's exciting. And uh, we have the we we have support internally and to the employee level. Yeah. There is a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement to um, uh, to provide resilience to this industry that we all um, grew up in mm -hmm. and and uh, and we understand the value that 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 it brings to society and the ability that this industry has brought in order to bring prosperity to societies and make energy cheap and abundant finally we made it right and so we spent how many years trying to perfect this hydrocarbon molecule and the way all the way from sort of uh, from coal to natural gas. And uh, I think we made tremendous progress and it's incumbent upon us to continue uh, uh, making that progress and what's demanded of us. To keep going. You have such a broad global footprint. That's a lot of influence, both domestically, North American and internationally. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping just for the sake of all of us, I mean, the people listening and the people that really that we're all trying to influence that they're understanding what's going on and that they start to see themselves as both, you know, um, as one of our other guests came on the show and called it, um, what did, uh, what did, uh, Bobby call it? Um, this was what he, you know what I'm talking about? I do not, no, I do he, not recall. He called it, uh, not traditional energy, but, uh, something to that effect, but the traditional energy with the energy in transition. And I'm just wondering if they start to see themselves as both traditional and energy and transition uh, workers, because that's something I think is important to for for people to see themselves as with such a large, uh, you know, influence that you guys have. Yeah, totally. I I think that this is, you know, this is a global movement. It's everywhere. It's present, and so we, um, in all the locations that we operate, uh, whether. 
Um, the transition is supported by policy. That's another thing that we haven't discussed yet, mm -hmm. but that's an important uh, an important factor of why, say, I drive a Tesla. There is a lot of policy around solar energy mm -hmm. and that has allowed that penetration, that et cetera, right? And so when you go when you go into countries that are sort of um, in the, I would say, coming out of the, the uh, trying to advance the developing curve and go, trying to go into the sort of the developing world, yet with, you know, highly polarized mm -hmm. sort of di di division and inequalities within those countries where you have lack of access to energy and poverty, and then you have um, the top wanted to decarbonize and transition. There are a lot of conflicts that yeah. that that sort of uh, get uh, uh, in the middle in terms of, of solving the equation. And so all of our people are really passionate about doing the right thing. That's embedded in Enerflex's value. And so to the extent that we can help uh, do both, sort of bring access to energy in a sustainable way um, is, is, is beautiful. You, I think, the third quarter results talked about a hundred million dollars worth of backlog in your four verticals. Yep. Um, and I think that's sort of the only definitive thing we've heard from the company from a numbers perspective. And I know there's some competitive dynamics. You want to keep things close to the best. But when you look at those four verticals and we think about a hundred million dollars worth of backlog, kind of help put it, put that in context. I don't know what the total backlog for the company is. And in those four verticals, where are you seeing the most traction? Yeah, so so roughly, I would say that the transition uh, bookings uh, were close to 20%. Okay. Um, so, you know, fairly Meaningful. representative, given that, that these projects uh, obviously take uh, a really long, uh, long time in terms of sort of from from development and conceptualization to actually uh, maturing into a booking where the project needs to be FID and ready to go. And so um, the particular announcement you are referring was all of those 100 plus million were into carbon capture projects. Okay. Um, uh, so clearly um, of the four verticals where we're seeing the most traction, I think if we can park electrification for a minute, I think that electrification is organic, right? And electrification will happen when it makes sense, as it makes sense. Okay. Uh, like same When it makes sense economically. Economically, mm -hmm. exactly. Same way we're electrifying cars. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't in the electric market three or four years ago because it's, I just don't think the, the numbers were there. Like, and so things have evolved. And I think that uh, electrification will organically happen. And we are, elect like I said, electrifying our own footprint elect and helping electrify, electrify our customers. But if we move into carbon capture, I think that's the vertical that is uh, um, that we're seeing the most traction, and I think several several reasons uh, for that. Um, uh, one is that obviously there is policy um, uh, and incentives today. The the recent IRA IRA was in place uh, before. Uh, but the, the, um, uh, in different form, I mean, the 45Q was in place before with the recent IRA was actually made richer, which has accelerated um, uh, that demand for carbon uh, uh, capture projects. 
uh, technology exists and is actionable today. So you can do this this projects with zero technology risk and has existed and is proven and has existed uh, uh, for decades. And um, and it's actually one of the easiest and, and more economical ways to decarbonize. So when we think about the abatement costs, this is the lowest abatement cost. What can you do that uh, reduces the emissions at the lowest cost? I think carbon capture is quite at the bottom, particularly pre-combustion sources. I think if we divide uh, carbon capture or emission sources, between pre-combustion and post-combustion, so post-combustion being basically those that uh, that generate as part of combusting, using the the say the natural gas to combust it, um, that is a bit more uh, expensive to capture because uh, it's less concentration of CO two uh, in the in in the in the exhaust as uh, these high temperatures. And so it's a bit more uh, expensive to capture. When we go to pre-combustion, which are highly concentrated, um, uh, low, um, a low temperature, high pressure volumes, fairly easy and inexpensive to capture. Um, that's very much what we, as, as I say, in the money today. In the mm -hmm. money meaning that um, with the incentives that are in place, you can actually do it without being at an additional cost to the emitter. And in some instances, even the emitter has the opportunity to actually benefit uh, from from it. So those projects have um, are, are moving and are moving really, really fast. And there is the market, just to put things in perspective, um, of the of the four gigatons of carbon of CCS that the world sort of needs to attack, uh, 0.5 gigatons are in North America. So we're talking about 500 millions of um, million tons of carbon per of, year. Per year of that, 20% is pre-combustion. So we're talking about 100 million. Um, then to the announcements that we made um, is, you know, two or three projects that we're doing that will contribute to a little bit over a million tons. So that is three projects on a million tons of a problem mm -hmm. that in North America alone is 100 million tons. Mm -hmm. so, so we're scratching the turf surface. We are scratching the going, surface. Yeah. Tell us or, or help help everyone understand. So what what kit or what pieces of equipment, what are you guys doing in this process? So you, you talked about pre-combustion CO2. So there's a facility somewhere that's got CO2 that's being generated. Um, <clears throat> what does your equipment do? Is it what's sending it down a pipeline to go get injected? Is it something in the front end? What, what's the actual kind of thing you're delivering? Yeah. High level macro in the in the in the value chain, you have a capture solution uh, that basically is process technology that is going to capture the CO the CO two and sort of transform the molecule, uh, separate the CO two from the rest of the stream, and the pure CO two will be uh, sort of uh, compressed and transported to be finally reinjected uh, somewhere, right? 
And so in the in the capture piece, that's where we participate. And when you look at the holistically the value chain, roughly 70% of the value is in the capture. Just because it, it it's just expensive, right? It takes it takes energy to capture energy. Okay. <laughs> and so um is uh and and uh, and so um our role as Enerflex is to design and engineer, manufacture those solutions. And the solutions are going to be different depending what the source of emissions is. Um, in the case of pre-combustion, I referred to, we've, we've all heard in the, the fertilizer production, ammonia, ethanol. Those are industrial processes today that throughout their production, there is a stream of pure CO2, CO2. that uh -huh. is uh, that is pretty pretty much being invented to the atmosphere. That stream tends to be highly concentrated, talking about 90 plus concentrations. So it's fairly easy, or it's easier to actually capture that CO2 and and um, and uh, and sequester it than it is from post-combustion emissions, where you can have CO2 concentration anywhere from 3% to 8 or 10%, depending whether it's a natural gas engine or a turbine, et cetera, which is, takes Instead a lot of, 90%, of right, takes a lot of energy mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. actually be able to, uh, to separate uh, and capture mm -hmm. that, uh, that stream of carbon. And so we, what does Interflex then, it's not just compressors, it's other process equipment and, and it's the design and right. packaging of all that. It's okay. the entire solution. Compression is part of the solution. Uh, but depending the source of emissions, uh, it can be sort of some 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 medium concentration source as well. So depending the source of emission is the sort of process technology solution. And so our job is actually to put uh, uh, the pieces of the Lego together in terms of of the capture kit, and um, and and partner either with the emitters or with. Uh, other partners along the value chain that their expertise is in sort of in, in the pipeline of transportation and sequestration to actually take it from A to Z. I, I don't know if this is a, a dumb question, but I mean, that seems like a no-brainer, that 90% on the front end versus 3% on the back end, right? right? Are there lots of those opportunities out there? Today, there are, but it's only roughly at best 20%, to be precise, is 17% of the entire emission sources. Mm -hmm. So the, remain, the remaining 83% mm -hmm. is post-combustion. It's difficult, it's expensive. The post-combustion. The post-combustion, I, I, I right? get that, but how many of the 17% are, oh, yeah. we, are we paying attention to? Oh, yeah, so those are the projects that are actually being done today okay. in okay. North America. Um, we just mentioned that we are doing 1%. In North America, there are 100,000 uh, million tons okay. to, be, to be done. And with the incentives that are in place today with the RA, they are absolutely, as you, as you call it, no-brainer yeah. in terms of, in, in terms of uh, uh, pursuing that as a decarbonization edge. And then you'll hear people talk about blue ammonia and blue ethanol and so that's sort of how uh, they are able to reduce the overall carbon intensity score of their product by actually mm -hmm. capturing the carbon and sequestering it. D Patricia, you're, you're 
let's think let's let's ask the question this way if we think about two years ago the number of pre-combustion projects you were bidding because you're pretty early in the process right mm -hmm. that you're helping spec out what these things look like um do you think that the the amount of activity is is it up 10 percent or 110 percent i mean the if you think about how busy you are specking out projects is it notably faster than it was a year ago or two years ago oh yeah oh yeah no doubt no no doubt uh, pre IRA with the exist sort of with the existing at that time uh, 45q sort of incentive it was roughly 45 dollars a ton mm -hmm. pre combustion pr uh, projects were being evaluated and were you know depending what the strategy for sequestration was was were either in the money or not meaning if you were going to sequester close to where the emission was, where you weren't relying on a thousand kilometers of pipeline, mm -hmm. etc. Those projects were fairly viable. The ones with the longer uh, pipeline were less viable. Um, now, after the the extended IRA has the the sort of the amount of projects that were in the um, in the spectrum to be in the money sort of grew exponentially. So I would say that pretty much everyone in the pre-combustion um, atmosphere is able to um, to action to on $85 on a ton. And, uh, and even I would argue that some in the post-combustion and that's what um, we are in the piloting stage uh, because uh, we believe is 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 doable and hopefully we're able to land somewhere where um where the capture piece um is you know way below um below the 40 40 50 dollars and then therefore achievable throughout yeah. the chain and and i think you mentioned a little bit ago that it, it, i think all these numbers tie together at 40 to 50 bucks a ton to capture you're at 70 percent or so of that total yeah 85 credit and that leaves some money for the midstream folks and the and the sequestering folks. That's right. Um, so suffice it to say, the IRA took us from near the money to, to clearly in the money, and and things are, are moving ahead. Yep. Talk a little bit about the projects that you're working on. You said you're working on three projects, and so is there any? What are the similarities and what are the differences? I assume at this stage that everything's a little bit different because we're pretty early in the process, but um, talk a little bit about what you're doing and, and give folks an idea at home of, of the kind of things that are moving forward. Yeah, so um, the projects that we're doing, like I said, that are all pre-combustion, the ones that have in FID, meaning um, final at, investment at decision, FID. Final in, yeah, final investment decision, and uh, the sources are in actually all cases in the fertilizer sort of ammonia uh, production. And so um, some of these projects are, um, we are sort of doing the integrated uh, capture solution. And then the, uh, the final sequestration is say a mile, a mile and a half away from where we're capturing. And, uh, and uh, in one particular project, uh, one of our customers have signed a sort of long-term agreement, a commitment uh, with, in this case, is, is Navigator, which is one of the long-haul uh, pipelines in the Midwest. 
And so, um, yeah, while we engage with the customer in the conceptualization, design, and now we're fabricating and installing the capture solution, we are uh, sort of delivering the CO2 compressed as at uh, pipeline specs to a navigator that will take it uh, for the customer yeah. and on a long term. And where's navigator agreement. winds up where? Remind me, they're taking... The, 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 it's, a, it's a Midwest uh, pipeline that follows the entire sort of um, um, Midwest industrial belt so, uh, and, and finishes in, in Illinois. Okay, so it's for, it, so for injection, final sequestration. Injection yeah. in Illinois, yeah. and then the summit pipeline's going over to North Dakota, right? That's correct. And so you're literally working on a project that takes CO2 a mile and a half away? And one that takes it a thousand miles away. Correct. So that's that's, that's the gamut. Difference. That's the gamut yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, I think that would really surprise the average person out there, especially you know the last guest we had on here was saying it's perfect right below you. Yep. Right. And I mean, which obviously would make sense. You know, I think anybody would say we'd love to just do it right here, but to go a hundred miles and then a thousand miles. Yeah. That's a big difference. I think that um, reverse oil and gas—they called it actually. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think all the the industrial sort, the industrial emitters that are in the Gulf of Mexico or in Texas, etc. Yeah, you know, most likely you're gonna find uh, a proximal sequestration. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's you know most of what we've seen. Um, but when you go north in the heavy industrialized sort of um, area where, like for example, these facilities in in Iowa, or or in you know many facilities that are smacked in the middle of a city, like where you know the evacuation is not as simple. Uh, that's why I think this sort of long corridor pipelines make sense uh, there, right? Uh, but if you're here in West Texas or or in the Gulf, most likely. Unless you have access to a nearby CO2 lines, and there are many, right? As we know that they've existed for, for for decades. For uh, you are um, in you mm -hmm. are pipeline. Sure. Yeah. It strikes me, Josh, that this is so. It's the classic um, resource extraction model: is the easiest stuff happens first, and then you move to the harder stuff. And in CO2, the easy stuff is pre-combustion. Okay. Yep. The harder stuff is post-combustion. By definition, it seems like right now, economically, you can take the pre-combustion and ship it a long way because it doesn't take much to capture right. it. Post-combustion, it takes a lot. You spend a lot of money gathering it or, or capturing it so you can't send it to, you can't spend as much money if you're dealing with that same right. finite $85 tax credit. But also, Dan, if you think about it in terms of timing, um, many of these projects are getting anchored with pre-combustion sources and sort of this infrastructure is being built mm -hmm. and once you have the infrastructure built and all these sources or these emitters that have pre-combustion emissions they also have post-combustion emi emissions they are not addressing them today uh, because it's, it's, it's not in the money but they will be addressable and I think that um, one sort of infrastructure is there it would be easier to be in the money right and so what we really need to solve is to try to and there are tons of money going into novel technologies mm -hmm. um, for capturing etc that are still sort of a lab or or um, 
stage, but I think that that's what needs to be solved: the capturing, um, uh, the capturing cost. Mm. We had another guest on the show that talked about that. How there's not a, you can't solve everything today. Right. And there's you know you're doing your job today, and we're moving the ball as far as we can move the ball today. And there will be some technology that comes. On. I think it was Jim Hughes was the one that said that, and he said it was one of our first you know three or four of the year 2022 and he said you know that's a problem that will be solved in 10 yep. years time right and i just thought that was such a good way you know we have to do what we can do today and not be frustrated that we can't solve that 83 or 87 percent 83 percent problem right. today right let's figure right. out the 17 percent today so i just think that's important that progress is being made and so yeah. i, I want to congratulate i mean truly just say like i'm glad we're solving these problems right now yeah and we're, we're starting on it. Yeah. Starting on it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Because a lot of it, even even the solutions are, are still bringing, a while. Yeah, yeah, but they're still bringing in old technologies, some yeah. of them that are going to have to be replaced in time. Old technologies we would call proven technologies. Proven Josh. technologies. Yeah. Yes. Patricia, two two questions. See, one is. Nice little spin there. Yeah. One is you're a global company. Is are the dynamics the same internationally? I mean, do they they don't have this big tax credit that we've got? At least right now, they don't. So, what are you seeing internationally? And I'll, I'll follow up after that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the will is absolutely there. Like ev everyone right. wants to do it, and we get inquiries. We are in now with the external acquisition. I believe it's twenty six countries. And we got questions every day, like, hey, I want to I capture the carbon. Uh, tell me how much. And the reality is that, as we talked in length, it requires policy. Uh, North America and, and the U.S. particularly is, is incentivized uh, uh, through the IRA and it's, a, it's an incentive that works. Canada is much more of a of a carbon tax, as so, so you know, but it's also a type of it's either either to an incentive or to a tax. But carbon needs to be priced, and a value needs to be given on carbon. And so, what happens internationally is that the will is there, but there is not really um, concrete policy yet. Um, there is, uh, there are, they have certainly been earlier in this year, various announcements, particularly coming from the Middle East with the ambition to capture 16 million tons of CO2 in the, um, uh, sort of in the Persian Gulf. Um, and, um, and I think that that's, and, and how they are thinking, so between uh, Saudi Aramco and Qatar Energy, et cetera, the way they are thinking about um, uh, anchoring this is through creating some, creating some sort of ma a carbon market. Mm -hmm. And so Australia is, is doing something similarly. And so I think that to the extent um, policy and regulations can sort of come along or um, the uh, sort of the global ecosystem progresses so much that carbon becomes yet a global tradable, easy tradable commodity. It's just going to be really, really tough in some of these jurisdictions mm -hmm. to take these projects off the ground because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is truly, really expensive. And 
And the other, the other uh, factor is that it is not the main problem or the main issue that those economies have, right? Uh, when we talked about Latin American economies, uh, I mean, there are, um, there are other priorities right. for those policymakers uh, rather than trying to sort of uh, establish policy around, um, around uh, energy transition. Energy transition. Mm -hmm. yeah. when, we, when we think about these projects, they're big. And so you're right in the middle of, of this, a lot of times at the front end. Um, how easy is it to, for these things to get capital? Do you, do you sense that these are um, easily financeable? Uh, are our companies, are your partners doing them on their own balance sheet? How's, how's it getting financed? Yeah, so I think um, it's, it's difficult then to treat all projects sort of under the same umbrella. I would say if the project is de-risk from a technology perspective, ACA, we're doing pre-combustion, it's been done, mm -hmm. there is no risk. Uh, the, regu the regulatory risk is understood, uh, like, like in the U.S. you would say, is there a regulatory, is it policy risk? It depends on how you, how you see IRA. If you see the IRA is going to be there and you're going to be paid for 12 years, that's probably okay. And then have you, uh, have you secured like a long-term offtake agreement um, for the CO2 from a credit worth, worth um, or credit rated uh, counterpart I mean, if your project meets those uh, three criteria, I think there is plenty of money for those projects. Yeah. I think it's structuring the project that all the pieces of the puzzle come together um, is, is not that easy. It's easier in the US than it is in, in other jurisdictions. Uh, but uh, I would say for the US and uh, talking North America in general, I think there is plenty of money available for these projects as long as you're able to address those major risks. Mm -hmm. When will your when will your three announced projects? When will they start putting carbon in the ground? Carbon in the ground, best case, um, end of twenty twenty four, so Q four, Q three, Q four next year, and um, the you know the the projects that are relying on long haul pipelines, those you know is yet to be seen. I think the target. Uh, it's probably Q1 2025, but it's also dependent on sort of railways, class six permitting. There are a <coughs> lot of uh, uh, regulatory sort of uh, pieces still moving and that bring some uncertainty. But the ones that, like I mentioned, are more sort of, um, as we call it, distributed sequestration, where you are sequestering near, uh, I think that uh, most likely Q4 2024. Okay. That's nothing. It's coming. That's nothing. It's fast. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's if you're trying to remodel your house, you're not getting a. You're not building a new house in that time period. No. That's for sure. That's so just anybody who hears that, like, oh, this stuff's never happening. That that will be here before you know it. But if that, I fully agree. But if you think about it, when we started talking about this with some seriousness and cohesiveness, we talked about 2030, like, oh, that's sort of by 2030, we're going to yeah. do all this. 
And I'm, I'm just talking about projects that we announced end of last year that are gonna be in place by 2025. That's halfway there. Yeah. And that is only a few projects. So it takes a lot of time to actually yeah. get to where we need to get and, and, and address yeah. the market we have to address in the US. Right. It's half a million, 500,000 million tons um, a year of uh, CO2 emissions. And it will be here quickly. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Well, I guess what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, if you started two years ago, it's going to be relatively soon. If you're starting now, 2030s, you know, you're pushing up against some of these, these, yeah. you know, timelines a little further out. Um, you have to talk to us about Argentina because I think you told me that you were in Argentina when the guys came home from winning the World Cup. I did. I actually landed <laughs> an hour earlier uh, than they did. So it was quite an experience. Did you think that was your welcome home? Uh, totally. My kids thought they, <laughs> they never thought that they were so popular. And uh, it was uh, it was just quite an experience. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it just was in, it, it's in, it was incredible. That final game was incredible. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like. <laughs> Well, um, what have we not talked about that we should as it relates to things you think are important, either what Interflex is doing or energy transition or carbon capture or whatever it is? Oh, wow. I think we covered uh, a lot, Dan, and, and I do think that um, I think the important thing is that as an industry, we're collectively all doing our part and i think there is so much collaboration throughout the value chain that we've never seen and so i'm optimistic we're optimistic to the fact that we are going to make a difference and it's going to be like your previous guests all said it one project at the time yep. and you know the project we announced that's one percent of the problem but guess what is one percent less to address, mm -hmm. and so if we right. continue going one one at a time, I'm I'm optimistic that we'll we'll get there. And there is a lot of collaboration throughout the industry, as you know, we're all human. We want to do the right thing. The industry wants to do the right thing, and I think that we are we are empowered and poised uh, to do it. Yeah. and that's very exciting. One of the things that strikes me about your part of the industry and your part of this process is. I am making assumption, tell me if I'm incorrect, but um, when I look at energy transition, I see a lot of people doing things that um, have low profitability or low rates of return. Um, I'm assuming that for Interflex, energy transition work is just like any other work and your margins are close to as good as your oil and gas margins. Is that fair? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's fair, uh, Dan, and I think even if you poll anyone, no matter where they are in the in the economy, in the value chain, nobody will be in business to not make money, right? Um, and so I think that um, that is our job to to give the ability to um, to our industry in the future, but also at f focusing on what's the lowest cost of abatement and what can we do that contributes to that cost and how can we all creative and collaboratively take mm -hmm. these projects off the ground. Yep. yep. There, be, there's a very real sense of, you said design, engineer, manufacturer. It's very tangible what you're doing. That's right. And there's not, 
I mean, there's not just in, you know, this conver- not our conversation, but conversations, there's a lot of theory in these, in this world, right? But yours is very concrete. Yep. Like this is something we've done. This is something we know how to do. And then anytime you're doing manufacturing, that's a very tangible art right. yep. to it. So I, I think that's part of. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just look at the, the service equipment mm-hmm. manufacturing part of the energy transition. And it's the one area where it feels like folks are starting out making money as opposed to doing something that says six exactly. years from now, I'm going to make money. Yeah. So I that. hats off. Um, are you transitioning to something? I am can transitioning. I, can I get something. a question? Absolutely. Okay, because you know we've had um, the part of this that I I get interested in is how people evolve into these roles and you know the passion they have. And one of the things that you, I'm I'm curious how you feel like you were set up to do this. I mean, this is nobody becomes the the chief. The CTO. Yes, the CTO. <laughs> you know, that's not a job application that you set out to, right? I understand that the career, do, do you, can you believe you're doing this today when you said 24 years ago you, you were doing what you were doing in Argentina? I mean, did you ever think that you'd be doing this type of role? Because you have a great passion for it now, it seems. Yeah. No, certainly no. I did not imagine that I was, I was going to be doing what, what I'm doing, but also... I think the way sort of this evolved into this role, it was quite organic within our organization. It was around the table of the executive management team discussing, hey, you know, what's what's our role in this new world of energy and how the future looks like and what do we need to do and how do we get started? And, you know, I, I was sort of, uh, I raised my hand and I was volunteered to get us going. And, and I was I have, volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that called voluntold before. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, indeed, I have a I have a great passion for it um, because I think that Enerflex is uniquely uniquely positioned to make a, a meaningful difference uh, that that excites me, excites everyone that works at Enerflex, even. As you described, you are doing something tangible. So even the mechanic that is on the shop floor, uh, putting these packages together, can can make a difference. And so I, that's sort of um, that's sort of how uh, how it it evolved. And and I'm passionate. My team is passionate. And I think that the fact that we're being able to provide resilience to our industry, resilience to our to our company for many decades to come, is is phenomenal. I appreciate that. Well, we can follow your progress at www.innerflex.com, right? That's, That's your right. website. And so we'll be we'll be listening and watching for further further development. So our we usually end all of our podcasts with what we call the lightning round. So um, you get to answer this question. Yes, no, short, you know, no explanation. It just One helps give answers, people a a view of, of who you are from a sort of tongue-in-cheek perspective. So you want to start or you want me to, Josh? I mean, this is a great, you get to ask, this is Let's such a good it. first one. Yeah, the first one's a, a no-brainer or you may never be able to go home. <laughs> so, messy or Pele? Messy. Okay. Yeah, you got a messy. You almost messed up the... I know, I know. <laughs> White Lotus or Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I'm going to get into this White Lotus. I heard it's great, though. I'm on the second season. Cash or crypto? Cash. 
Uh, S and P five hundred for twenty twenty three. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Mm. Uh, EV or internal combustion engine? EV. Uh, summer in Calgary or winter in Houston? Summer in Calgary, hands down. <laughs> I think she had to say that. Um, we've been asking folks, does the Ukraine conflict continue into 2024? Unfortunately, I think most likely. Yeah, there's no good answer there. Yeah. Um, burgers or pizza? Pizza. Mm. Thin crust. Thin crust. Very nice. Billy Joel or Billy Idol? Gotta go with Piano Man. Okay. Yes. Work from the office or work from home? Office. Uh, do you expect another USA IRA type of bill in the next two or three years? Doubtfully. Okay. Doubtfully. Um, this is a good one, Dan. An IRA type of bill in Europe in the next 18 months? Most likely. Really? Okay. Okay. Josh, you go ahead the next one because I, I get the last one. Yes, you do. Uh, United Airlines or Delta Airlines? Neither. Really? Ooh. How do you get down to Argentina? Ooh. United. Yeah. But neither. <laughs> and importantly, will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? Absolutely. Yay! <laughs> Woo! I love it. Uh, Patricia, thank you very much. Chief Energy Transition C-toe. Officer for Interflex. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Thank you both. It's been yeah. a great pleasure. Thank you. That was you. great.